if we're in a corporate kind of template, you tend to have your chief operating officer dealing with the day-to-day -day stuff, and you have your strategy director trying to shape for the future. I feel that, that tension. I've got a fleet commander who has to be ready for the fight tonight. And I've got a, a second sea lord who's saying, well, that's actually, this is where we need to be in three years' time, five years' time, 10 years' time. And there are sometimes inevitably tensions between that here and now and shaping for the future, which I think is a normal position for a CEO to be in. And how do you manage that? And how much risk do you take on the fight tonight? Because actually, you don't want to let the nation down in five years' time. Hi there. If you've listened to Leading Before, you might have heard what I think was one of our standout episodes with Sir Mike Wigston of the Royal Air Force. This time, we're back in a similar vein with Admiral Sir Tony Radekin. He's the UK's first Sea Lord and Chief of the Naval Staff, or more conventionally, you might describe him as the Royal Navy's CEO. Tony oversees more than 30,000 personnel operating a fleet of aircraft carriers, assault ships, submarines and more to protect UK interests at sea. We talk about the new investment and recruitment needed to tackle changing threats abroad, taking life-threatening decisions and fulfilling our duty in Afghanistan. His career so far, including three command tours of Iraq, the importance of not second-guessing those above you when there's a vital job to be done, and how to enjoy the role without being intimidated by the Royal Navy's great legacy. It's a great episode and addition to the leading file, which now features 60-plus leaders from business, charity, the arts and sport sharing their stories. Please take a listen and do let me know what you think. I wanted to plunge in the Royal Navy, known to all, British institution, a fighting force, diplomatic force. In your role, you're overseeing, I think, 30,000 personnel. And I read or heard somewhere recently, I think you might have said it, or it's something that's said about the Navy, everyone is meant to be a leader, but there are only some commanders. And I'm just interested in that idea. If you could unpack that, how you bring in your people and bring them on, and then they self-select themselves and feed up through the organisation. Well, thank you, James. I, I'm not sure I would buy into that everybody is a leader. I think there are leaders and there are followers, and we are part of an enormous team. And we have this large team and then this family of smaller teams within the organisation. But I do think there is something very special which applies not just to the Royal Navy, but I think to all of our armed forces, which is the quality of the men and women that we have in uniform. And some of that is self-selection, some of it is selection, some of it is then the training and the experiences and the culture and the ethos that we have that engineers those qualities that we want to bring out. And therefore, I think what I'm trying to describe there is that there are some things that are intrinsic to the individuals that we have. There are then some things that the organization bring out and then we build on that. And I think at its heart, it is this deeply personal human trait that we draw upon, which is how we interact with other people in order to get things done. And how do you do that in a manner that is going to be successful? And then if you go back to its core, the notion of a single individual in charge of a ship or a submarine 
and individuals in charge of various elements of that ship or submarine and each of them needing a leadership role and everybody needing to understand what is their purpose on board that ship or submarine that then is part of how it's defined our culture our leadership style and it exists equally in our shore roles with our raw marines and and with if you like well, with our aviators but it's founded in that ship identity and the leadership style that we have seen over hundreds of years and that ship identity i guess that really draws on that you need to have that sense of autonomy because if you are out there in the middle of the ocean it is down to you as that leader of the team it is and i think all of us in the armed forces talk about mission command which is senior leaders saying what they want to be done and to be achieved and giving the more junior leader the leeway as to how that's going to be done. Now, I think our predecessors had that to a much greater extent. And there is a big debate about whether or not mission command is being fettered with a world where clearly communications are almost instant. But there are, I think, the tenets of mission command and what that entails and the faith and trust that you put in somebody lower down the organization and that they will be able to do a better job than you trying to manage and lead this at the at the higher level is still very true and then there are certain parts of our organization where that is supremely true if i take our submarine service and if you take the nuclear deterrent well by its very nature the submarine leaves the berth with some very clear orders and it ideally does a patrol of several months where that submarine never broadcasts to say where it might be and we don't know specifically where that submarine is and, and it has the authority and the trust in what is our most important security responsibility. So that's why it still feels very alive to us but I recognise with the advent of phenomenal communications, I think there's a challenge for all of us as the more senior leaders. How do we give people the time and space? Because they will do it better than us constantly interfering. Tell me about your role. So you've been first sea lord and chief of the naval staff since 2019, responsible to the Secretary of State for fighting effectiveness, efficiency and morale. And that really sums it up. It's the operational excellence. You've got to hit the numbers and there's the huge HR role there. How do you view that? How do you deploy yourself with that big intray? The first one is it's a huge privilege. And I think there's something about also enjoying the role, not being weighed down or intimidated by a substantial role. And particularly when you're running a service which has these other facets which is that you are a you're a part of the constitution you are an institution in your own right you have this incredible historical legacy there's a danger that you can keep looking back and feel weighed down by that and i mentally have always tried to say this is a huge privilege but don't be intimidated by it and actually try and enjoy it because i think that then plays into how you actually conduct yourself in the role 
I think then when you get to what does it entail, at its core, it is about delivering for the nation through the Secretary of State so that we can help keep this nation safer and more prosperous and we fulfil our duty. And that might be in very dangerous and precarious times, but you turn up and you're ready for that. And that involves a human element, as we discussed, and that you've met the moral component and that people are willing to fight and do this extraordinary thing, which all of us do in Uniform, which is that they're prepared to put their lives on the line. And again, when we talk about it in terms of the fundamentalism of what does it mean to be in uniform, then that to me is something that we have to recognise is an extraordinary responsibility that we have. And it's an extraordinary thing that we do on behalf of the nation under these special permissions that we have by virtue of being in uniform. And then you've got the constituent parts that go with that. So these amazing men and women, and then you train them, and then you equip them, and then you exercise, and then you go out in the world, and you, you project your force in order to try to meet the government's aims. But you also have to run the institution, which, as you touched on, is about budgets, yeah, you're still the CEO, aren't you? As well as that wonderful purpose, there's the brass tacks of the organisation. Exactly. This, to me, is part of the joy and part of the challenge. That actually, you've got that human element, you've got the tactical element, and can, yeah, at its core, do our, our ships, our submarines, our helicopters, our aircraft, our raw marines, does that all work? And will people turn up for the fight and win the fight? And then you've got the and well, how do you ensure that that happens? And how do you ensure that you stay within budget? How do you ensure that you've got your planning ready for the next uh, the next 10 to 15 years? Uh, how do you play your part as a feature of the wider defence? Where do you need to give ground? Because there are higher priorities elsewhere in defence. Where do you need to fight for your case? Because actually you deserve the resources. There are then the classic events some of which are, are not CEO level and some which are. And the pandemic clearly is something that's hit all of us and reaches across all levels of the Navy. So now, how do you keep delivering all your outputs? How do you maintain your ambition? But also, how do you manage that with a pandemic? And so I think you're always caught between the core role and the future and then what's actually happening on a day-to-day -day and how do you balance those aspects? And, and I think that ends up being the CEO role. And almost, just to finish on that, if we were in a corporate kind of template, you tend to have your chief operating officer dealing with the day-to-day -day stuff and you have your strategy director trying to shape for the future. I feel that, that tension. I've got a fleet commander who has to be ready for the fight tonight. And I've got a, a second sea lord who's saying, well, that's... Actually, this is where we need to be in three years' time, five years' time, ten years' time. And there are sometimes inevitably tensions between that here and now and shaping for the future, which I think is a normal position for a CEO to be in. And how do you manage that? And how much risk do you take on the fight tonight? Because actually, you don't want to let the nation down in five years' time. And I was going to ask you what the biggest leadership challenge was, Tony, but I think you've pretty much summed it up there. It's that balance. It's the judgment call between today and tomorrow. It is, but I, the only one that I would add to it is what's felt like my biggest leadership challenge. And this is a magnificent organisation. 
a well-found Navy that's being invested in. But the backdrop, I think, for all of us as service chiefs is how do we respond to the threats that are out there that are changing? And how do we respond to a technological revolution that's ongoing that is influencing those threats and needs to influence how we respond to that? And, and I, whilst I, I love the Royal Navy and I admire who we are and what we are and what we do, I would also accept that we are not institutions that are quick to change. So part of my leadership challenge has been, how do I respond to that imperative that we need to change? And how do I overcome the inertia in my own organization? Because uniformed organizations and public sector organizations, I think, are tend to be quite slow to change. And there is quite substantial inertia and we are risk averse. That to me has been my leadership challenge. How do I overcome that without getting too risky and shaping us for the future threats that we face? I suppose one of the challenges, if we liken you to that corporate CEO, I mean, their tenures are getting shorter, but I think, correct me if I'm wrong, you're still having to operate within this three-year assignment, if you like. So you're trying to think, plan for the long term, but I think you only have three years to do it in. So ordinarily it's three years and okay. there's a debate going on as to whether or not that's too short. And I was part of Lord Levine 10 years ago when he was looking at defence as an institution and he rightly criticised defence for these senior leaders that bounce around. And how can you deal with these big problems in such a short frame of time? And, and we have improved since 10 years ago. So much more of our one-star, two-star, three-star, four-star, they're a bit longer in, in their posts. But whether or not it's still long enough in order to affect the changes that need to be affected at the pace that we want to do it, I think is a big debate. And my sense is that we need a little bit more time in all of those senior roles. And we've been trying to do that with the Navy. And then we try to use other mechanisms that that compensate for where we might be turning speeding through a bit too quickly i've got a navy board and again back to your corporate example there are five executives on that navy board and there are five non-executives and the non-executives serve normally for six years and that again helps to create some continuity and some steadiness on the direction and to make sure that even if some of the executives swap out, that the direction and the pace and what we're trying to achieve doesn't go through this. I'm the new kid on the block. I've got a very different view. Now let's just go all the way back to basic and sort of, which is not what we need. We need to keep heading in the right direction, try and pick up more pace and get stuff done. Can you talk a little bit about the world as you see it today, Tony? I mean, you've touched on a few things there. I want to come back to the people. From the kit point of view, I would observe that you've been put in a great position compared to some of your predecessors. You have these two huge 65,000 tonne 
aircraft carriers. I remember writing about these, well, it's more than a decade ago. They've been so long in production. They're there, they're out, they're promoting UK interests and supporting trade. And then you also have the outcome of the integrated review. There is more investment going in to the Navy. So I talk about that first, then I really want to come on to the changing role because, you know, conflicts aren't what they were, that the role has changed. But I'm interested on the kit first. So the first one I would say is, it's not just the Navy, it's defence that's being invested in. So we are the beneficiaries of an agreed budget. So we were separated out of the rest of the spending review. So the department has got an agreed budget, which is really important when you look at how much capital is spent in defence and therefore how long term many of the projects are. We also got an uplift of nearly 10%. And that is phenomenal against the backdrop of a pandemic and the economic uncertainty that goes with that. And then if I come down to where do we shape and how do we utilise that money, I think all of us as chiefs see that we have to respond better to the threats that are out there. And that is a rise in state threats. It's the challenge of technology and it's the all pervasiveness of a modern world where you can't necessarily separate home and abroad. You can't make those distinctions as we tend to do between peace and war. So you get that gray zone piece, the constant competition. And so for how can you use your armed forces in order to meet the government's aims? And how can you do that all the time? And in effect, you're on operations every single day. And that then means we need to invest more in cyber, in space, in digital, in some of the areas that are less traditional, but we are definitely needed for tomorrow's fight as well as today's fight, if we're honest. And so I think that's what's going on. And then if you come back down to the Navy, well, I think the Navy has been successful in in marrying with a government that wants to be able to better respond to those state threats, a government that wants to be out in the world and visibly out in the world and wants its armed forces out there as part of that competition and ready for if those competitions turn into conflict. And then you end up with very substantial investment and it's on the back of the two aircraft carriers. It's on the it's affirmation of the, of the nuclear deterrent. And we've got the Vanguard class submarines now, and then we'll have the Dreadnought class submarines. You, you've seen the aircraft carriers, and then you continue that investment. So you have the support shipping that enables those aircraft carriers to really project the power that, that they've got when they're aligned with their aircraft. And those F-35 aircraft are phenomenal aircraft. And then you've got your escorts and destroyers. And we are fortunate that actually those numbers are going up. So we go from about 19 frigates and destroyers now, a slight dip, and then we go up to 24 in the early 2030s. And then what's interesting with that is at the same time as you're increasing your numbers, you're at, we're actually able to gain more out of each of those individual numbers. So we, we work on a, an availability for our ships and submarines of about 60%. And what we're showing is that if you have different crewing models and with modern ships, you can get 80%. And what that means is 
If I go from 19 frigates and destroyers to 24 frigates and destroyers, and from 60% to 80%, I double the number of escort days that I can then deploy. And then that then matches the government strategy of wanting more forces out there and out in the world. And then I've, in, to enable that, I've then got to change my crewing models. And I've then got to spread that philosophy all the way through the fleet. And therefore, I then start to look at my Royal Marines and these, these magnificent men with this phenomenal commando spirit. Well, actually, in the modern world, I want more of them out there the whole time. And I want them being closer to special forces, closer to the intelligence agencies, so that they can respond to the government's needs at, at yeah, the blink of an eye. Uh, and then, and so we then have, you know, we're going to have some Royal Marines in, in Europe and we're going to have some Royal Marines east of Suez. And then you've got this lay down, which is still going to be anchored in the Euro-Atlantic, but you've got a government policy about tilting to the Indo-Pacific. So how can the Navy contribute to that? So you then you start to deploy some of your ships further east. And I can do that because I'm being invested in and I can get more out of the force. And that's that's what I think is happening. And then my final piece to just to, just to, to sort of hammer the, the nail home is that's only doable because the submarine and shipbuilding program over the next decade is very substantial. Seven or eight new classes of ships and submarines. And that grows the Navy's tonnage. If you look at it from 2015 to 2030 by nearly 50 percent. And that's a phenomenal increase. And that's part of a broader domestic agenda that then marries up with leveling up and also emphasizing the the strength and importance of the union because our ships are you know many of them are built in scotland and therefore you've got a foreign policy agenda that marries up with a domestic agenda and as a navy we like to see that we're contributing to both of those big government agendas and the examples of tilting the world to Indo-Pacific. I mean, the Queen Elizabeth carrier has been you know, out in the South China Seas recently as a presence. There's good examples of where you're at out in the world. You talked about the investment in technology, and I know that you're doing better with retention and you've increased your headcount. You made that point in, in a speech recently. Do you still need more people if some of these carriers don't need as many people? You know, They are floating computers, they're highly automated, or are you using people differently? To be honest, James, it's a bit of everything. So we need some more people. We need some more people in the right places. So I'm shifting people from shore positions to seagoing positions, but trying to make the seagoing bit the best place to serve, where you have more certainty, more stability. That's where you get your leave. That's where you get your best training and so on. And it's core, my pitch, as it were, to the rest of defence, is I'm servicing that increase in the Navy size, but I'm doing it with 20% fewer people than when the Navy was last that size. And by the way, at the same time, that new Navy will be a third more available than the previous Navy of that size. And when you add those things together, that's why you then get to this ugly word I need a transformation program to pull those levers in order to unlock all that goodness that comes from both a bigger Navy and one that is more operational and available 
and he's better positioned to face the threats that we have. That at its core is what's going on with the Navy at the moment. So I need some more people at the moment, but it's to service a bigger Navy. And then as the technology comes in, then I think that we will look at whether or not there are some opportunities that even though I'm I'm servicing a bigger Navy with fewer people, actually might I need even fewer people as you continue the, the, the modernization and the automation journey. But at the moment, it's a 50% bigger Navy with 20% fewer people than when we were last that size and a third more available than when we were last that size as well. And that's why you then need to, to look at your shore positions. What skill sets do you need? What HR policies do you need to enable that? Because all of that is only useful if it's out in the world and it's facing the threats yeah. in the right direction. I think it's really useful to look at some of your um, CV points. So born in Oldham, studied law at Southampton, qualified as a barrister, and it feels like it was all happening for you in the mid-90s because you were married in 95, called to the bar in 96, and the same year promoted to lieutenant commander. It's almost like having a double life, and I don't mean from getting married, for the two careers. And there was obviously a decision you took at some point which direction you were going to go in. I'm just interested in your perspective on those two different careers and what they offered to you as a future leader. I was really fortunate. I was sponsored by the Navy at University to read law, and I'd had the classic gap year beforehand. So I had my year off travelling around Europe, picking grapes in Germany, porcelain factory in Germany, picking oranges in, in Greece, and then pulling my cash together with a schoolmate. And we then had four months traveling around India. I then came back, took my Admiralty interview board, and I, I was part of a big intake in 1985, which I sort of, four weeks later, after my Admiralty interview board, I found myself at Dartmouth, and I was still in mellow cheesecloth mode. And I was kicked from pillar to post. I was not some bright star at Dartmouth. I was kind of, can, can I just get through and avoid being kicked out? I then had a year with the Navy, I then got to university, I enjoyed my law degree, and then carried on my career with the Navy. And if I'm honest, I, I wanted to hedge my bets. The Navy kindly agreed to sponsor me carrying on my legal studies whilst I carried on my junior officer time. So I commanded a, a, a small patrol boat, and then I started my warfare courses, and I did my, I did my evening study in order to tick, tick, yeah, get through my, my bar exams. I was in my, my 20s, early 30s, enjoying my career. But I, I'll be honest, I, I had a, another view, which is actually, did I want to be staying in this for a long career, uh, and particularly a Navy that was shrinking in size? So it was the canny thing to enjoy what you're doing and then leave. And I stuck with it because I saw some lawyer friends that were earning more money, but it, it didn't, it never attracted me enough that that's what I wanted the purpose of my life to be. And I don't want to get all pompous and pious, but I think this, this thing that we have about serving the nation, the closeness that we are to our people, the mix of jobs that we do, the fantastic opportunities that we have, I think is an amazing career. And therefore, that, that sort of hooked me through. If you look at it in 10-year chunks, I enjoyed my junior career and get married. And then, you know, then you have the next 10 years where you're, you're moving up a level and you get command of a frigate and you start to 
you go to staff course and then you start to move beyond the Navy into the rest of defence and you have your children and so on. And then you get to your senior career where you're doing a mix of going back to the Navy in senior positions on going into defence in senior positions and you've got different challenges. And the bit that I think I've, I've really enjoyed is all the way through that, you continue having this closeness to the, to the men and women you lead. You continue having adventures. You continue having opportunities. You continue to learn. And you're part of this incredible fabric, which is hopefully you know, serving the nation and helping keep us secure and contributing to our prosperity. So I kind of, it was a hedge. And I don't mean that to be disparaging to any, any lawyers out there. I'm, I'm glad that I stuck with it because it's been yeah. a great journey. Because you've seen some fantastic things and, you know, duties in the Falklands, operations in the Adriatic, countering smuggling in Hong Kong and the Caribbean, and then these three command tours of Iraq. Uh, you talked about that early patrol boat that you had oversight for. I'm interested in when, when was the first time you were in charge of people? I think all of us in the Navy, the Army and the Royal Air Force, we follow a similar system for our officers, which is that we select people with leadership qualities, and then we look to hone and train them in these leadership colleges, Dartmouth, Sandhurst, Cranwell. And then as soon as you leave those, you're put into leadership positions. And, and they're more junior positions where you're, you have a leadership role, but you also are definitely learning on the job. And you've got to have the humility in order to learn and take the experiences and develop. And then I was fortunate, I got selected for command four years after university. And so that was the small patrol boat. And I was doubly fortunate because these were small patrol boats that are still connected with university units. And actually you were given quite a lot of autonomy. So you had tiny ships company of about four or five and then a university cohort students of about 75 and a small budget and you spent some of your time in the university and some of your time driving this small ship and it was a fantastic experience but i the leadership piece i think every job i've been in i've had that leadership role sometimes they are more distinct with this title called command where you have additional responsibilities and the but very much stops with you but every job I've been in I think has been uh, a leadership experience and a leadership obligation of of leading and serving the people under me in order to get things done and you talk about command Tony you know bring there's so many on your CV maybe bring one of them to life so you're commanding officer of HMS Norfolk from 2003 onwards you're patrolling the Gulf you're trying to stop the smuggling of oil out of Iraq so how many on board and how do you run things that was just after the end of the Gulf War in 2003 pretty confused picture you're at the top end of the Gulf there are various threats there you've got 200 people on board your routines are, let's say, yeah, six hours on, six hours off. So I've got a second in command. So it's not all about me. It's the pair of us. So I'm setting the tone. I'm a tactical commander. So I'm delivering a safe and secure top end of the Gulf 
to a maritime commander who's working to a bigger commander in Baghdad. And our role is to try to, to normalize life as much as possible after a Gulf War. And therefore, can we, can we get the revenue flows going? Can we stop the smuggling? And can we do that in quite a risky environment? If you then go down inside the ship, well, actually, how can we be really successful and make life as difficult as possible for the smugglers? So you've got a tactical plan there. And how does that fit in with your air assets, with your fellow maritime assets? And, and, and actually, it goes all the way down to people in small boats who then board dows where there's a risk there. Uh, and by the way, you're disrupting some somebody's livelihood because they're looking to make a big stash of money out of smuggling oil. Uh, so actually, it's got a, a hairier edge to it. And then how do you do that with keeping this machine called the ship going? Everybody contributing to keeping your ship safe and trying to stabilize and normalize things for the country of Iraq. And that's that's this kind of constant effort. And you're looking down through the ship and trying to look after every individual and that they all know what they're doing and that their job has got a purpose. And you're trying to enable them to be as, as magnificent as possible. And then you're looking up to say to make sure you're delivering for your boss. And this this philosophy that we have that to be successful, you should be looking at your one up and your two up. So you your immediate boss. But what is your immediate boss trying to deliver to his or her boss? And that's why I come back to right. The maritime element was a flank to a, a leadership in Baghdad. And this is a really important flank because 90% of Iraq's revenue as a country is through its legal exporting of oil. And so it's fundamental to the running of the country. And it's even more fundamental when a country's bruised and battered from a war and it's trying to get itself back up onto its feet. My view when you're in command is don't get seduced by all the highfalutin and big stuff going on above you. Know your context, but look downwards and inwards and deliver on your tactical objectives. And when I've moved up in the system, a few years later, I was a Commodore at the top end of the Gulf and I then had Iraqi ships, American ships and Brit ships working for me. And what I said to the CEOs was fundamentally, can you just do what I ask of you and do it really, really well? And don't keep second guessing just know my context. But what I want to be able to do is give you some tactical objectives and know that you'll pull them off. And then they focus downwards and inwards and harness these amazing men and women with these amazing bits of kit to do their job. It struck me that around that time, I mean, I interviewed Mike Wigston for this podcast a little while ago. And so you were there patrolling uh, the oil smuggling. And around that time, a couple of years earlier, he was he was in the fighter jets, uh, the RAF patrolling the no, no-fly zones in, in Basra. And a point he made to me, and I'm interested in your view on it, I said, well, clearly with your CV, Mike, you needed to gain that credibility. That helps you as a leader of the whole organisation. And he said he didn't necessarily think that you needed to have seen that degree of active service. His point to me was, I don't know why we're still choosing our leaders based on their hand-eye coordination as 20-somethings. As so I'm really interested, you're smiling, and, and I'm interested in your view on that point about credibility. Do you need to be have been on the front line in the way you have, or can leaders come from different parts of the organisation? 
I think leaders can come from different parts of the organization. And I think we have to broaden it out and we have to look at, let's be honest, a what is tended to be a male-dominated culture and, and a bureaucracy that then selects its future leaders based on various conventions. And some of those tend to support the, the way that the existing organization works and looks. So I think there's, there's a sort of broader point. The defining criteria for me, when you're being put in these roles, if, if, if you look at Mike and I now, we support the chief of defense staff who has to be the prime minister's primary military advisor. And Mike provides advice from an air perspective and I provide advice from a maritime perspective. And I think in order to have some credibility in these roles, you do have to have been placed in positions where you've got that operational responsibility and an operational anxiety that the decisions you're taking do impact on people's lives. And I go back to that core aspect of being in uniform that we have this special permission in circumstances to be able to take life. And as part of that, we have this extraordinary responsibility where we put people's lives on the line. And I think you have to have, you know, you have to have felt that and know that those aspects exist in, in peace as well as war and as well as the sort of in-between peace of war. But I think you have to understand that the, the, the granularity and the, the texture of that uh, that goes with that. And you've come on to that issue, you know, that you do not take lightly about lethal force, about being in harm's way and doing harm and so on. Taking those decisions can never be diminished. I mean, how do you rationalise that? How do you, you know, put that away into a box to stop some of those decisions haunting you, I suppose? So I, I think you fit into a system. So if I look upwards, I think we've got to be very, very clear that those those decisions and that formal responsibility uh, lies with our, our politicians. So you get your authority from the politicians. And I think we have to distinguish and they they have an additional obligation to the nation because those are massive decisions. Then we're operating at a lower level, which could be at the operational and tactical level, where you are actually now on behalf of those politicians, putting people into harm's way. In my mind, I think you then, you kind of straddle this strategic to tactical. So you're putting people in harm's way because your nation expects this of you and has decided that this is, this is warranted. That is your duty and you're in uniform and you have signed up to being an arm of the state that can be used in that way. And therefore, you're commissioned and you're now being charged with fulfilling those duties on behalf of the state. Yeah. But then the tactical bit to me is the awful moment when things have gone wrong or things have not gone as expected and somebody has been hurt or somebody has died. And can you, as a leader, write 
to the mother of that son or daughter and hand on heart say actually what they were doing was absolutely worthwhile and that you thought through the risks and you did everything possible in order to make them a success and the operation a success and you're very very sorry and recognize their sacrifice and can you feel comfortable in the sense that you did everything possible in managing those risks in a sensible way that to me is the tactical to strategic piece and we've got to be honest with ourselves that some of those things that the state asks us to do can only be accomplished sometimes with risking lives and that is a facet of being in uniform so nobody here was pretending that you can you can achieve all these things on behalf of the state when it starts to get violent and you're in conflict without people getting hurt but but are you comfortable with your professionalism with the way that you've led these people with the way that you prepared them with the way that you trained them with the way that you put them forward that the risk match the circumstances that were being asked of you by the state. And I guess you must have to tread that line all the time. That is why you're the boss. And your statement quite recently on Afghanistan talked about pride in, in what had been achieved. Obviously, it's quite a, a messy, ragged end to Western involvement there. You know, I think the figure I saw was 60 Royal Marines you know, lost their lives during the course of, uh, you know, of our involvement. So I suppose you have to sum that up and congratulate people for their involvement, think about morale think about the future and the next engagement absolutely and i i think it's about recognizing that people did their duty and and that is what was being asked of them and sometimes fulfilling your duty carries risk and the outcomes about those strategic or operational or tactical objectives might be precarious and the issue is, and the reason why we should be proud of our service, and, and it equally applies across the whole of UK defence, is that people did their duty, even in extraordinary difficult circumstances. And we should be very clear that that is what the nation asked them to do, and people put themselves forward and they did what was asked of them. To me, there's a, for some of the people that are serving and that have served in Afghanistan, I think for some people that serve, I think sometimes it's easier to cope with the anxieties that have come from the Afghanistan campaign. And we need to reach out to not only the people that are still serving, but veterans and their families and their friends and so on. And, and recognise that the particular end of this campaign has created even more anxiety and, uh, and and just reassure people what they did was magnificent and we are incredibly proud that they fulfilled their duty and that's what they were being asked to do. You've talked a little on transformation, Tony, and by going into your CV, it was a very long way around to get back to one of the big first acts you made in 2019, taking out, I think, something like 40% of admirals, getting HQ staff back onto the front line. I mean, this was very eye-catching. You know, again, if we liken you to this corporate CEO, I mean, you really created your burning platform there. I'm really interested. That's a big call because you're 
really shaking things up for people that you've worked with for decades. So just a little on, on that decision would be helpful. At one level, they were big calls. But it, again, you go back to what is your responsibility? Uh, your responsibility is to deliver a Navy that is best home to serve the nation. It is not some club which is self-serving. And actually, I'm going to give you an extra job, uh, even though I think that we would be a bit more efficient if we had fewer apples. I don't wish that to sound blasé or harsh or whatever. You've got to hold people like me to account to have the best Navy possible for the money that's being invested in the Navy. And, and sometimes that means, right, look at the structure, look at the organisation. Could we be a bit better? And this is not blighting people's careers because there are other jobs for people across defence. But we're still going through that process of reducing our headquarters, being sharper on who was responsible for what. And we had too many people with overlapping responsibilities, uh, particularly at a senior level. So shape it accordingly. And the reason we needed to do it is because, I, I think I said earlier, the world's changing. We need to respond to the threats that are out there. We need to harness the investment that's being made. We need to get closer to some of the technology opportunities that are out there. And therefore, the, the organisation needed to change and adjust. And that needed a different approach at the top of the organization. And we're still trying to push that through so that we could be stronger in the North Atlantic, deliver these amazing new carriers, reform and modernize our Royal Marines, have more forward presence out in the world and embrace technology and innovation in a bigger way. And, and I couldn't see how the existing organization would do that at the pace that was required. So you, so you do a bit of a shake up and, and, and then you get on with it. But I think you can't, you can't then to sort of get too involved to say somebody who thought that they were going to have a longer career as a rear admiral. Well, um, yes, I'm really sorry, but come on, let's celebrate that you've had an amazing, an amazing career, and you're a rear admiral, or you're a commodore, or you're a captain. And I know when I walked through Dartmouth, I never expected to be at this rank, and I definitely didn't expect to be a rear admiral, and so on. So can we just take a step back, celebrate? and do our thing, which is to serve the nation, not to serve ourselves. Thanks for listening to this episode of Leading with James Ashton. Please rate and review us if you like what you've heard. There are more than 60 leaders featuring in the Leading Archive, everyone from Darren Henley from Arts Council England, Katie Bickerstaff at Marks & Spencer, and Bernardo's Javid Khan. They talk about their biggest leadership challenges, how they got to the top of their organisations and the advice they offer to the next generation. More details at leadingpod.com and more episodes coming soon.